Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, China and their detainment of Canadians. Ontario's back-to-school plan. Are the kids safe? Canada will soon be home to a Moderna plant. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, go ahead. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Have you noticed the days are getting shorter? Damn you, dog days of summer. I will not go quietly. Where's my bike? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, man. Even when the wheels come off it, it's fun. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. There's lots of ways to do that. Uh, it starts on the website. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The big story of the day, of course, is Robert Schellenberg, who uh, facing and now has been convicted. Uh, death penalty is the sentence in China for drug trafficking. He lost his appeal. Uh, earlier on today the second important verdict will be handed down uh coming up in that we're now hearing from michael spaver uh it could be uh early tomorrow which would be later tonight our time uh so um Obviously, a very, very, very uh, uh, tedious time, a very, very crucial time for uh, Canada and China relations and how this whole thing uh, moves forward. Uh, of course, uh, the uh, Michael Spaver and uh, Michael Spaver rather and Michael Kovrig were arrested uh, in uh, as a result of the detention of the Huawei executive who was arrested here and is awaiting extradition charges to the United States. Uh, in the case of Robert Schellenberg, he was uh, charged earlier with drug trafficking uh, and was sentenced. And then uh, after the situation with the two Michaels, his uh, he basically went back to court and they gave him uh, the death penalty. To talk more about all of this, Rachel Gilmore with us, national online journalist with Global News. Rachel, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm great. Hope the same for you. <laughs> Rachel, this seems like just a, such an important time uh, in this case as, you know, when one domino falls, it seems to uh, to set the rest off. Uh, what do we know about the, the Schellenberg case? And is there any options for him moving forward here after this this uh, san- uh, sentence was was obviously confirmed? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a really tough blow to his case. Um, I can't say that it's a hugely surprising one. The Chinese courts have a 99.99% conviction rate. So it's uh, the odds aren't exactly in your favor once you've been charged with something. But um, he does have kind of one last Hail Mary um, in that the case, his appeal of the case, um, it's going to be moving to the Supreme Court in China. But I, I don't expect that uh, there will be a different result unless something changes with the, with the Meng Wanzhou case. You know, China says that there's that there isn't uh, a link between the verdict um, and Meng Wanzhou, but uh, I think we all know that that's not entirely true. <laughs> so, um, any idea why this is happening at this point? Is this just the normal course of things uh, in China, or is there uh, is there a political reason for the timing of this now? 
So one thing that's kind of interesting is last night, um, Canada's ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, said that he doesn't think that the timing of this is a coincidence. And that's because um, just this week, uh, Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou's lawyers have been making sort of that final push to fight against the extradition request to have her sent to the U.S. So they're kind of at the tail end of it. It's, it's uh, The tensions are at a fever pitch. It's all kind of coming down to this. And so China, in turn, is ramping up its pressure on Canada by, you know, moving forward with these decisions and effectively threatening these Canadians. I mean, that's, that's sort of when someone's sentenced to death, when they were initially sentenced to 15 years in prison and then uh, immediately faced a retrial once Meng Wanzhou was arrested, um, that's Schellenberg who I'm referring to there, um, you know, and he's suddenly sentenced to death. Um, th- yeah. th- that really is a threat, you know? So it, it definitely, it doesn't seem very coincidental, and a lot of experts are saying that. And Yeah, many experts saying slim to none the chance of him getting any farther with this than, than what he has uh, gotten. What about Canadian government reaction here, Rachel? What's, what, what's the government's stance on this? I mean, uh, obviously they're not agreeing with it, but what do they do moving forward? Uh, what, what is their plan? Yeah, so, I mean, the government is in a tough spot in many ways. Um, basically... They, they've obviously condemned it. They, uh, you know, Canada doesn't have the death penalty, so any decision like this is condemned no matter where it happens in the world, whether it's in the U.S. or China or anywhere else. Um, you know, Canadians being sentenced to die is is a big, uh, it's a big issue for the Canadian government because it's not a punishment that we have here. Um, but beyond that, really, the only um, kind of options they have left are diplomatic ones, you know, getting the international community on side to really put pressure on China to do the right thing here. Um, But it it gets difficult because what China clearly wants is Meng Wanzhou to be released. But in Canada, politicians don't decide the outcome of court cases. (laughs) It's a very important aspect of our society. So, you know, they can't just swoop in and say, you're free to go. Um, so th- that's, that process has to kind of run its course. But unfortunately, it's very clear that the outcome of that process um, is sort of a key factor in deciding the fate of the two detained Michaels and uh, Robert Schellenberg. So, you know, it, it, there isn't a ton that the Canadian government can do other than try to put the pressure on, try to convince China to do the right thing, continue condemning the kind of arbitrary detention, the clear retaliatory arrest, and the sort of baseless nature of these charges. But China's going to do what it's going to do, and and it's really unfortunate for, for these men and their families. Um, in regard to uh, the Huawei CFO case, I mean, there was lots of chatter I- at the beginning of all of this that, you know, there could be some sort of deal, some sort of whatever. Now it looks, as you mentioned, that this is going to run its course uh, in the courts. What are the chances there? Because anyone I've talked to says there's a pretty good chance she's getting extradited. Yeah. So, I mean, that comes down to the general court processes. I mean, how good of a case do her lawyers make? How good of a case does does the Crown present? I mean, these are sort of the key factors here. And unfortunately, they're ones where it's just the law. It's not, it's not about, you know, what, what deals can be struck necessarily or what can be done Um, because, you know, that's a pretty dangerous precedent too. If, you know, if, if China can arrest you know, any Canadians they want who are in the country, whenever Canada does something with Chinese citizens that they don't like, regardless of whether it's, you know, a 
standard procedure of our legal system. Um, that that's a really dangerous precedent to set because you know who's going to feel comfortable taking a vacation in China if there's a chance they get scooped up and held in a prison for you know upwards of 800 days like the two Michaels have been. It, and you know even really even thinking about the Be- even thinking about the Beijing Olympics that are coming, how safe are our athletes in the con- in the Olympic contingency that's going there? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something where we're starting to see politicians put some pressure on, too. I mean, Aaron O'Toole is calling for a boycott, I believe he said this morning, um, of the Beijing Olympics. We're hearing quite a few calls for that. Um, So who knows what's going to happen there? There's a lot of tension, a lot of um, diplomatic issues, and we'll just kind of have to see how it all plays out. I think we're all sort of um, clenching our teeth just watching this. It's it's a bit nerve-wracking. Oh, so today, as a result, Robert Schellenberg, uh, death sentence continues, um, and and I guess one more slim chance uh, at, at reversing this. And now we're hearing that, uh, you know, waiting in the wings is the case for Michael Spaver, and that we could hear that information within a day. Yes. So we are hearing that it's quite possible that we'll hear the outcome of his trial within the next 24 hours. And that's Again, just a really big nerve-wracking one. Again, as I mentioned, China's courts have a conviction rate of 99.99%. So the odds really aren't in his favor. And it's it's just really nerve-wracking for his family. They're, you know, they're, they've come out. Um, they're, they're generally pretty, pretty private, but they have over the last few months made a, a couple of statements just kind of hoping that things will work out and, uh, he had really, you know, Michael Spavor had really good relations in China. He mm-hmm. uh, he was fairly well regarded there. Um, and I, I think they're just kind of hoping that that can win him some favor and, and help him to get out of this predicament because they really are trumped up charges that were presented behind closed doors. But, you know, it, it was just such an opaque process. So, um, yes, we'll find out within the next 24 hours uh, if, if, you know, things are kind of unpredictable with Chinese courts. But that seems to be the indication. Um, we'll find out whether he's been found guilty or innocent. And, uh, and his and- state will likely affect Kovrig's fate as well. That was my next question. Have we heard that name come up? Because it seems like we're going one, two, three here, right in a row. I would expect so, yes. Um, so we haven't heard any timing with respect to Michael Kovrig's case, but um, in the past, obviously, whenever something has happened with Michael Savor's case, uh, Michael Kovrig's fate has uh, closely followed. So um, I would expect that, you know, that whatever outcome we hear for Savor will be sort of indicative of what we can expect for um, for Kovrig. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, his wife, Vina, and, and his family is just watching with bated breath to see what happens. And my thoughts are with them. It must be an incredibly difficult yeah. time. Um, obviously, you know, we, we've seen what's happened with Robert Schellenberg and, and he, him getting a conviction and then dragged back into court and, and, and now a, a death sentence. Do we have any idea what the penalties uh, could be for Spaver and Kovrig at this time? I mean, could it be that extreme? Yeah, so as I understand it, um, you know, when I previously looked into this, the, the, the charge of, you know, a spying charge in China can carry up to the death sentence um, or life in prison. So, you know, there could be a really grisly, really tragic um, fate awaiting these men. And, you know, a lot of experts have said that they it really could 
turn out poorly for them. It's not like there is no chance that they could face the worst outcome. China has proven in the past that they are very willing to um, take an extreme approach within their judicial system and with respect to the kinds of uh, punishments they dole out. So um, it, it could really turn out to be a harsh sentence for them. All right, last question, Rachel, uh, and that is um, uh, any idea uh, or any sort of indication if we will hear some sort of statement on this from the Prime Minister? So uh, he he has been taking personal days for, for some time now. I would expect that if there's a dramatic outcome, we'd probably see some kind of a statement. I can't imagine he'd stay quiet on that. Um, but uh, he has overall... Um, I believe he's actually on vacation right now. So we've been seeing a lot of personal days for him. But I do think that this is the sort of thing that, that would be a vacation ender for the prime minister. And, and we might expect to see um, probably not, I'd expect, a press conference, but at the very least, a statement. Rachel Gilmore with us, national online journalist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. And, of course, check out the website uh, for the latest info. Rachel, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Of course, you too. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Stephanie Carbon, Associate Professor of Internal uh, International Affairs rather, at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and former National Security Analyst for CSIS and author of the new book, Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Boy, there's a segment right there, Stephanie. We're going to bring you back for that. Um, but let's talk about what has developed today and, and Schellenberg's case and such and, and its relation to what we are seeing, uh, as the, uh, as the Huawei CFO case makes its way through the courts. Is, is this just all a coincidence? What, what are your thoughts on the timing of all of this? I don't think we should see it as a coincidence. And I think, you know, Canada's ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, said as much outside the courtroom uh, shortly after the verdict was read that basically this is very much, you know, related to the Meng Wanzhou arrest and subsequent trial. And, you know, that's going on this week. And, uh, you know, somewhat ironically, she's uh, arguing an abusive process um, uh, argument. And that's why the charges should be dropped because they violated her rights at the, um, uh, during, during her arrest. Um, we, we can talk about that later if you want. But uh, so while that is going on, we have news that two out of the three individuals of concern are now being uh, or having their charges uh, either confirmed or brought forward. Um, so in, in the case of Mr. Schellenberg, I mean, it's a little different than the than the two Michaels. Right. This is someone who in 2014 was caught, uh, you know, smuggling drugs as a part of a, a, some kind of ring. Uh, I believe it was methamphetamines trying to bring them to Australia. He was arrested in China. He was convicted in 2015. Now, the normal practice in China is that, uh, you know, foreigners, when they're caught, you know, they get heavy sentences, but often they can appeal their sentence. And, you know, they're usually allowed, you know, the, the sentence is reduced. They're allowed to, to leave China and never come back. And that was the process he was going through in 2019, trying to get his sentence commuted or at least to return to Canada. And it was you know, basically, it, it just was bad timing. Um, the Chinese government said, no, not only are we not going to reduce your sentence, we're going to augment it because we feel that we have new evidence and now we're sentencing you to death, which is a pretty extraordinary thing to happen uh, against a foreigner in China. 
And, and no doubt, you know, I don't want to downplay the stress of this at all to Mr. Tellenberg or his family and loved ones. So um, there's an appeal that was happening and that was heard today. Um, it's not the final step in the case, but basically they confirmed the death sentence uh, as appropriate. I don't again talk about that. But uh, the other thing is, too, is that there is still one step that has to be taken. There, this, this decision has to be confirmed by the People's Supreme Court of China. Uh, I want to make it clear to your listeners, I'm not an expert in Chinese legal processes, but that's my understanding. So it's not like the sentence is going to be carried out in anytime soon. But obviously, this is extremely grim news for him. Um, and yeah, I don't think we should be under any doubt that this is uh, some kind of retaliation for um, the, the Meng Wanzhou arrest and, and subsequent and ongoing trial. As you mentioned, Stephanie, obviously the Schellenberg case is different from the two Michaels. We know that uh, the charges against the two Michaels were, were pretty much trumped up uh, and made up, say whatever you want to say, use the term you want to say, as a result of, uh, of course, the arrest in British Columbia. Is that the same for Schellenberg, or is he guilty as charged? Do we know any information there, or are those charges trumped up? Um, again, I, I've never heard any evidence which suggests that Mr. Schellenberg is innocent. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like he was actually involved in, yeah. in some kind of ring. Um, that being said, what is what has happened subsequently is mm-hmm. deviates from the norm because, like, you know, there's there's actually a lot of foreigners who get in trouble for drug smuggling in China. It's not an entirely rare thing. Um, what I think is 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 unusual is the fact that you know rather than having his sentence uh, commuted, that the sentence was augmented back sentenced to death. I think it would be quite something if China did um, did actually execute a foreigner. Uh, it's not out of the realm of possibilities by any means. So I think that's, that's what's exceptional in the case. And as you say, the two Michaels, the difference is that one was working as a researcher for, um, you know, Michael Coburn was working as a researcher with the International Crisis Group. I believe he was on leave from Global Affairs Canada at the time. Uh, he was working as a researcher. Uh, but China has a very broad national security law, right? It's very vague, and people can be arrested for basically, you know, violating it under very, you know, what we would consider to be very flimsy circumstances in the West. So is someone who's working as a researcher in a think tank, gathering information, collecting data, could that be seen as a violation of the national security uh, law in China? Probably. Um, is it normal for researchers to be attacked in this way? No. Um, but certainly he was vulnerable. And I think, you know, they were very, very careful in who they picked. I don't think this was random. I think that, you know, they, they actually had, you know, some plans here and, and went ahead with them. So I think that that, and in the case of Michael Spavor, who we should be learning about his um, verdict sometime in the next, uh, I believe, 24 to 48 hours. But mm-hmm. he is someone who was, you know, involved in, um, you know, tourism flights to North Korea. I mean, not the place I want to visit, for example, but I mean, other people, I guess, wanted to visit North Korea, and he had a travel company that did that. Now, was he smuggling information in and out of uh, North Korea, China? I don't know. Um, or was he just doing these things and, and seeing, you know, was he just a convenient scapegoat? Um, it, it's hard to say. And again, a lot of the normal everyday activities that, you know, even myself would do as a professor might be seen as actually violating this national security law. So, you know, China may say that we have a case here, but, you know, from from our perspective, it's, it's pretty flimsy and, and the two men are almost certainly innocent.
Um, as you mentioned, Schellenberg, uh, and now it, it appears that uh, Spaver is next. Do we know anything about Kovrig at this point? Are we to assume this is going to be a one, two, three? Uh, well, it's interesting. We haven't heard anything about Michael Kovrig. The what is in, maybe they're waiting for the first to come down in the men case. It's kind of interesting. It's almost a bit preemptive because, and I say interesting. I mean, when I say interesting, I don't want to be uh, offensive. No, no. Right? It's, it's, I'm, I'm very, very cognizant of the fact that these men are going through horrific times. But what is what is unusual is that normally the you know Canada Act and then China Act and then Canada Act and then China Act as a kind of you know retaliation. In this case, they seem to almost be doing it preemptively. So maybe they're waiting for the actual verdict in the, you know, next steps of the Meng legal proceedings to actually go through. Uh, I can't say for sure. But um, so it's interesting. We haven't heard about Kovrig, Michael Kovrig yet. But in the case of Michael Spavor, um, well, both men actually had secret one day trials where there was not consular access permitted in the actual uh, chambers itself. So we, you know, the normally a Canadian diplomat would be allowed in the room to see, to follow the proceedings, to hear, you know, the evidence that was being presented. That was not the case in, in this particular scenario, in the case of either man. Uh, Michael Spavor is being held in the very north of China, close to the North Korean border, obviously because that was his job. I believe Michael Spavor is being uh, held in Beijing. So, um, you know, I've been told the fact that this was a one-day trial held in secret does not bode well for the two men. Um, you know, I mean, we're talking about a criminal justice system that literally has a 99% conviction rate. Yeah. So I, I don't think we should be uh, particularly optimistic to see to see this um, uh, a criminal charge confirmed against Michael Spavor in the next 24 to 48 hours. All right. Uh, again, we talked about timing and the main case. So uh, give us an update on that case and what is happening this week uh, and why the timing is what it is. W- give us an update on that case and where it is. So it's my understanding. And again, I, I, I just want to be clear. I, I did not go to law school. I'm not a lawyer, but mm-hmm. I'm the national security stuff on the side. But what's basically happening is there's kind of like two different trials happening here. The one is the idea that, you know, um, they're, they're testing to see if there's a kind of dual criminality. So in other words, is the offense that Meng is accused of in the United States, is it also illegal in Canada? And, uh, you know, the, the argument is that, yes, uh, she's being charged with bank fraud. Bank fraud is also illegal in Canada. So, you know, she should be deported. And we should be clear here that, like, this kind of, you know, our system is such that, you know, the evidence, it's not a criminal trial, right? We're not actually convicting her of anything. We're just seeing, you know, is you know, the United States has requested that this person be deported to them uh, or extradited to them. And Canadian extradition law is usually weighed in favor of the country demanding extradition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think that's going to work out so well for her. But there's this other separate case that's happening right now, and I hinted at it earlier, which is the abusive process uh, argument, which is basically when she was arrested, did the CBSA and RCMP follow the correct procedure? And if they did not, did they, um, you know, did, were her rights violated? And, you know, so I think there's certain things about when, you know, was she told that she was, you know, being extradited to the United States or that there, there was a warrant, you know, the way they searched her devices, all the way she was held uh, for a long period of time. All of these different things are contributing to an argument of basically saying that, you know, her rights were violated at the border. And even though she's not a Canadian citizen, anyone in Canada has certain rights to proper procedure in Canada, including at the border. So I think that this is an important um, 
uh, thing going forward that, uh, you know, it actually it would be really interesting because traditionally courts have not really extended uh, a lot of rights and tar- charter freedoms at the border. It's kind of seen as a, I don't want to say charter free zone, but a lot of people have made complaints for a very long time that, you know, there's not a lot of rights and, and that go along with, with when you, you know, when you go from Canada to the United States, I'm sure we, most of us or most listeners have done that. You know, it's, you know, they're asking who you are, what you're doing. They're going, you know, they're scanning your luggage. You know, they may x-ray your underpants, all that kind of stuff, right? Like, you don't really have the same kind of um, yeah. uh, uh, rights that you would have that if you say you were, you're stopped on the street or, or things like this. So I think it would be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see if, if this case has any kind of bearing on what happens to Meng, right? Like if, if the court finds that, yes, her, her, you know, she was subject to um, a, an abusive process, which, you know, we should also be very clear. There's a lot of irony here because, you know, yeah. uh, Michael Coburn, Spavor and, and Schellenberg are not getting any process. Whatsoever. Yeah. Um, well, she sits in a mansion irony over this, but the fact is this, you know, the, the way she was arrested may actually have an impact on whether or not she's actually extradited. Uh, what about the comments that Donald Trump made when he was president and, and, and the assumption that some sort of deal could be made? Does, does that carry any weight? It may, um, you know, I think they're trying to argue again on the other side with, you know, so the, again, there's the two cases, the abusive process case, and then there's the should she be extradited case. Um, I think on the extradition side, they're trying to argue it's political, that this was something that um, Donald Trump was doing as a way of getting back at China, a way of getting back at Huawei. And this has nothing to do with her guilt or innocence. This is a purely political motivated thing. And I mean, it was a very unclever thing for Donald Trump to say. I mean, not the first yeah. and probably not the last, but, um, you know, that that could add some ammunition. I don't know to the extent that, um, the extent to which it's going to have bearing, because in theory, this is being done by the U.S. Department of Justice, right? Mm-hmm. Not Donald Trump. We actually, in democracies, have very strict rules about, you know, pri- you know, presidents and prime ministers being able to order people in jail and using them as bargaining chips. I mean, t- traditionally, that doesn't happen in a democracy. So I don't know the extent that that argument will have weight. Now, that being and said, apparently this I mean, case, this is, case goes oh, back sorry. to like, apparently this case goes back to like 2012. Yes, it does. So it would, it would, you know, they, this could have happened in 2012. They've been investigating for some time and then they've brought it forward. So again, I don't know to the extent that this is an argument that's going to carry a ton of weight. And again, I would really reemphasize the point that extradition law in Canada is usually weighed in favor of the state that is demanding the extradition. All right. Over and above all of this, Stephanie, on the horizon is the Beijing Olympics. Uh, how, how, do, how do we process this? How, uh, you know, many are calling for a boycott. Uh, the, a poll in, of Canada uh, just the other day said uh, the majority would consider it. So how does the Beijing Olympics fit into all of this, especially with this kind of tension? Well, it's going to be quite odd for Canada to participate in the Olympics, knowing that one of its citizens is being held almost certainly unjustly in the same city uh, on terrorism charges, not, or sorry, on espionage charges because of an arrest that Canada made. Um, I think that's going to be a very hard pill for a lot of Canadians to swallow. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, there's also like de- degrees of participation. Uh, you know, maybe we don't participate in the opening ceremonies. Maybe we don't, um, you know, maybe we participate in the events, but not, um, you know, any of the kind of celebrations around the event. The other thing, um, though, is that it's not just 
I think it shouldn't just be about the, the Michaels. I think it's an important part of it. But also, mm-hmm. we have the situation with the Uyghurs, that there's yep. an ongoing, you know, mass detention of Uyghurs in China, which is one of the worst human rights situations in the world. Um, the other thing is, of course, actions against Hong Kong, the crushing of, of any kind of democracy in Hong Kong in the last two years has just been brutal to watch. So there's a number of issues. I mean, it, it's it's easy for me. Like, look, I'm an academic. I, I'm very proud of myself if I can run on a treadmill for 45 minutes a day without collapsing. You know, if I was training at elite level, it, it's hard to make that yeah, decision. Yeah. You know, do we to what extent do we have politics and sports? And, you know, we've always had politics and sports. I don't, I don't think we should we should ignore that. Um, but that's I think it's going to be a really hard decision to make. I, you wonder if it's actually going to be an election issue. You know, it, but mm. I, I don't know to the extent that that would actually sway anyone's vote. But, you know, this could be, you know, a tough question in an election debate. Like, do you support sending Canadian athletes to the Beijing Olympics, given that our athletes are detained? Uh, another um, angle to that, Stephanie, yeah. is if the two Michaels weren't safe, it, are the athletes? Is there contingency? Is there staff? Is there support? Uh, are, are they safe there if the two Michaels weren't? Well, that's another really good question. I mean, there was already questions about this with regards to, you know, when, whenever, I mean, just from a national security perspective, generally, whenever you send athletes, your elite athletes, um, with all their, like, testing technology that goes into their training and all these things, uh, whenever you send them to a country like Russia or China or whatever, there is a serious national security component to that. Uh, aside, and that's just aside from kidnapping. I mean, the way they're kind of surveyed, the way they're kind of tracked and targeted and things, that's actually a real thing that you do worry about. So that was going to be um, the security of athletes and the security of the Canadian Olympic team is an issue in every single Olympics regardless. So, but yeah, I mean, there may be an extra uh, time. You wonder if China would retaliate by not allowing Canadian Olympic participation, you know, maybe not uh, issuing visas to certain athletes and, and things like this or, or monitoring them. So, yeah, no, I think um, other the other thing could be journalists. Like maybe yeah. they're not going to attack the um, Olympic team, but, it, you know, the team is accompanied usually by a, a large number of journalists. So would there be journalists allowed? Um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, China is in the midst of another wave of the COVID pandemic. So you do wonder if these, uh, how these Olympics, uh, which I guess 2022 will be coming up next year, are, are going to be held. So, I mean, there's just so many questions about this, but I do think it does put the Canadian government in a fairly difficult spot. Like, how do you celebrate the Olympics in a country that is, you know, not only being accused of ongoing active, uh, you know, uh, massive human rights violations, but also that has specifically targeted Canadians in a particular way as a form of, of arbitrary detention uh, to, you know, try and circumvent the rule of law. It's a real thing. Uh, how do you think China is feeling right now about Beijing? Are they nervous? Are they concerned that some may not show? I think that they're very concerned. I mean, like, look, I think, you, I don't know if you remember or how many of your audience remember the, the 2008 Olympics. That was almost a real coming out for China, right? This is China making its stage on the, uh, you know, making, yeah. I don't want to say debut on the global stage, but it was making a statement like, hey, we're here now. And we're now a major power and it was a real shower of force um not military obviously but like in terms of you know the drummers the precision and and this really impressive olympic opening that they had um so yeah i think that they would be concerned and i think they'll press really really hard i mean we china's engaging in something we call or that's been colloquially called um uh you know kind of tiger diplomacy um it's been really uh you know uh you know, if if you hurt us, we're going to hurt you back twice as hard. 
Um, you know, we saw even just this week, Lithuania, uh, was it Latvia or Lithuania uh, basically recognized or allowed Taiwan to set up a diplomatic office in their country and China recalled the ambassador immediately. So, you know, it really is, uh, you know, they are extremely sensitive to any kind of effort that's seen as ganging up on China. And, you know, there are some historical roots to that. But, you know, I think China, you know, felt that in its history, Western powers did gang up on it and to a large extent it did in the in the 19th century. But, um, you know, we're in a different situation now. So, no, I think China is worried about this. But, you know, it's interesting in 2008, uh, because of these concerns, China actually loosened certain restrictions and allowed certain things like, the you know, access to the Internet and things like this. I don't think we're going to see that this time. I think we're actually going to see the exact opposite. So rather in terms of addressing concerns about human rights, about freedom of speech and things like this that could potentially lead to a boycott, rather than actually kind of loosening those restrictions, I would bet that President Xi is going to try and double down on on any kind of critical comments that could, that could be made. Uh, only got a short time left here. Is Beijing a bargaining chip for the rest of the world? You clean up your act, you give us back the two Michaels, we're not going. Is that a bargaining chip or do they just, like you say, double down? Um, yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, it's hard to bargain with, uh, you know, a country that's yeah. comprised of, of one-sixth of the world's population. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, bargaining chip is unfortunate. I just think if we don't go, it should be for ethical reasons, not necessarily a bargaining chip. Um, the, the one thing I would say, though, is, um, you know, if there is a very silver or thin, thin, thin silver lining to the fact that these court cases have been going forward, is that um, the process needs to be completed in order for China to actually send people back to Canada, Hmm. right? We've seen this happen before where, um, you know, there was a Chinese spy arrested in Canada to be extradited to the United States in 2014. China retaliated by kidnapping a family, uh, the Garrett family. They basically had to go through the entire legal process. And once the, the, the spy was extradited to the United States, once they were, uh, the two Canadians were convicted of a process, but that then allowed them to be extradited back to Canada. So my hope would be that, um, you know, maybe this could be solved through some kind of uh, diplomatic bargaining whereby Meng actually pleads to a lesser offense, is allowed to go back to China, and then the, you know, the Canadians are convicted of their offenses but are permitted to return. And mm. that would be the ideal situation. And hopefully that would be nice if that happened before the 2022 Olympics. But I, I'm not particularly optimistic about anything right now. But, you know, maybe I'm just being a cynical academic. Stephanie Carbon with us, Associate Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and author of the book Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Stephanie, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. Cheers. Here is today's Daily Commentary. So I'm watching a Netflix documentary on Bob Dylan, which I highly recommend. And they were talking of Dylan establishing himself as an artist and writing his own songs during the 1960s. As they talked of the turbulent 60s that included riots, bomb shelters, and the planet coming to an end, it reminded me of what we are hearing today. And we are all still here. That despite the garbage crisis of the 70s. Remember the Keep It Beautiful license plates that have led to the recycling programs we have today. The lead in paints, gasoline that was banned, pesticides, acid rain, dead lakes. And then in the 80s, it was the depleting ozone layer, the rainforest that was gone by the end of the decade. World famine and droughts monopolized the news of the 90s. Like the issues we have tried to resolve over the last century, vaccines a great current example, we have seen all of this before in some form or another. 
Yes, the issues today are pressing, but no more than they have been through history that we have overcome. Humans solve problems through ingenuity and unity, not political agendas. The world is not coming to an end anytime soon, just like it didn't back then. We learn, we move on, we live life, and not in fear. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, We know where we are with COVID-19 and mass vaccinations in Ontario. My goodness, Canada, uh, a big nod for everybody who's participated as uh, in Ontario. I believe our second, no, first shots are up over 80 percent and our second shots are about 70. Those are for the ones that are eligible. Uh, Let's not forget those 12 and under. Uh, There still hasn't been an approval process. Uh, the, The approval still hasn't been granted, but that is is coming, uh, but we really don't anticipate that to happen prior to or much uh, before Christmas. So uh, that obviously leaves those 12 and under incredibly vulnerable, as you can hear uh, as my dog is echoing now. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, September is going to be quite an issue, uh, as it has been in the past, and we survived during a global pandemic. What is going to happen moving forward, and how do we adjust for uh, the next year of COVID-19 in the classroom? Let's bring in Andy Kidder, Executive Director, People for Education, and she is with us now. Andy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I, I am. Thank you. Thank so... You. Obviously, uh, lots of chatter now between now and September about how we are going to uh, handle all this. Uh, obviously, throwing a stick into all of this discussion is the fact that uh, kids under 12 cannot be vaccinated. So, uh, or at this point, they haven't been approved for the vaccine, hoping that happens closer to Christmas. But obviously, it, it, it's still a precarious situation for those 12 and under uh, in the schools. What is the situation with vaccination, Annie? Uh, is What is the policy? Should there be a policy? about uh and you know they're having the same discussion in the healthcare industry but in the education industry should should teachers be vaccinated well i think you know first of all my proviso is i am definitely not an expert on this i'm not Mm -hmm. an epidemiologist i'm not an expert on vaccines or or the science of it all um but i think that we do from all of the things i'm read i've read we really do have to think about the kids who are under 12 and we have to understand that the way to keep them safe is by making sure everybody else is vaccinated. So I think that that's the first kind of thing we need to know, because it is going to be at least Christmas, if not later than that, uh, when younger kids can get vaccinated. I think for me now, I've I've slowly, I've evolved, I've changed my mind a bit, Mm -hmm. which is that I do think that we have to move towards some sort of mandatory vaccination, but with exemptions as there is now. But mm-hmm. it's the moving towards part that's important in that. So we, I am, we are still saying uh, there needs to be a task force. There needs to be an ed- education slash health table. One of the things that could address together, so that's with teachers and parents and students and support staff and principals and directors of education, all the health experts and people from the both ministries sitting down together to figure out how you could slowly introduce uh, mandatory vaccinations for schools. All re- it's already mandatory to be vaccinated for measles, mumps, whooping cough, things like that. Yeah. So it's definitely possible to do, but there are a lot of things we need to do first. So I think this is something we can't just suddenly decide to introduce this. School starts in three weeks. Um, but it does, it seems as if 
there's no way around uh, this moving forward. And it's partly, you know, the whole discussion that's happening right now about vaccine passports or certificates, which kids have. I mean, we have, you know, a, yeah. you can get that little yellow card and it says, you know, what your vaccinations are. So I think that's where we need to go with the vaccination piece of this. There's lots of other educational things that, that need to be looked at, but the vaccination uh, part of this, needs to be addressed. We need to sit down and work it out because it is the one way I think that we're going to uh, at least, you know, prevent some of what seems slightly inevitable, which is that case numbers are going to go up. Is there, uh, why are we having this discussion? Because I think, you know, we were we were desperate for vaccine for so long. I think maybe we just assumed everybody would get it. Uh, is there hesitancy among this sector? And, and, and why do you think that is? Like, well, it, where, where do the unions, where do the boards stand on this? Because at the end of the day, the vast majority of us are uh, either vaccinated or on the move towards it. Well, I think there's hesitancy among the population. So it doesn't matter if you're yeah. a teacher or a nurse or a parent or a, you know, CEO of a company. This, you know, probably the same proportion of people are going to be hesitant for a range of reasons. Now, the people who are absolutely, who think it's a conspiracy to, you know, inject 5G or whatever, yeah. people think you're never going to change their mind. Yeah. But for the people who are just going, oh, I don't know, or it's too hard, or I feel worried, you can actually get those people by, A, making it really easy. So we think schools should be vaccination centers. There should be nurses in schools because they're in the center of communities. So make it as easy as possible uh, to get But that. you know, Annie, here we are talking about we're doing all of this for uh, marginalized communities and those that are having trouble accessing doctors. Why are we having this discussion with educators? I mean, the vaccine has been available forever. So, uh, you know, certainly since May in mass quantities. So, uh, again, we are doing all of that with, you know, those parts of the community that are most vulnerable. I think a lot are surprised that we're having this discussion around teachers. Well, but we're also having the same. I mean, it's not mandatory to get vaccinated if you work in a hospital either. Um, well, so- and that's and that's the other side of this is that many are saying both educators and healthcare should be vaccinated. I mean, that's well, you know. I, yeah, and I think that where where we're going to end up moving to is that it's going to be about access. So if you want to be in a healthcare system or in a yeah. school or excuse me, anywhere public like that, you're going to have to show your, you know, whether or not you're vaccinated. And there, there is going to have to be differentiation. And I think that that, that is going to have to happen because it's too hard right now to think that, you know, some people will be vaccinated and some people won't. And there are lots of businesses, horribly, the only thing I can think of right this very second, to be whatever. <laughs> There's a strict club in Toronto mm-hmm. that's been talking about it really a lot. And it's like, yeah. we have a rule and you have to be vaccinated to come in. And everybody's happier. Than everybody who works there yeah. feels safe. The customers aren't going, we're not going. Um, and I know this is, they're not equivalent at all but it's definitely possible it's you know they're doing it in quebec there and it's a way and you know because that's the other thing is in to entice people to get vaccinated so Mm -hmm. if it means i have i can go places i couldn't go otherwise i think we're more likely to get all the people the people who are hesitant we're still not going to get the people who think it's a conspiracy
All right. So uh, obviously with, uh, you know, I, I guess it's not the same as last September because we have a vaccine and, and, and uh, the majority of us are vaccinated. Um, but obviously those under 12 aren't. And many are concerned about that. And especially families that have uh, kids that are over 12, kids that are under yeah. 12 or some are vaccinated, some are not. My goodness, it's creating uh, a lot of anxiety. So I, I'm not sure how different it is going to be for those under 12 uh, next year. But certainly the high school kids, it seems that that's opening up a bit more simply because obviously uh, they've been vaccinated. But we're still seeing masks mandatory grade one to 12. Uh, your thoughts? Well, I'm glad that masks are mandatory. And I think that, you know, we're we're still learning. And you're right, we're, it's different than last year because we have vaccines. But some things aren't different than yeah. last year. We're still having discussions about, you know, physical distancing. There's still no, there's been no change in terms of lowering class sizes to, in order to ensure physical distancing. There was, they, there was an announcement last week that, you know, high contact indoor sports wouldn't be allowed. And then suddenly a day later, that was changed to say they would be allowed. Um, there's a little bit of a worry that we're, we've gone to, it, it could possibly be a little bit too lax, but it is important that schools are open and it is important that kids are able to participate in extracurricular activities and go to the library and be in the cafeteria. But it's trying to make sure then that there's, you know, there is lots of easy access to tests. There's easy access to vaccines. Um, they have announced, you know, making sure there's good ventilation in all schools, all rooms in schools that are uh, used as classrooms. So, you know, progress has been made. I the, the plan right now where it's sort of surprisingly thin um, is that there's actually no plan right now uh, for what happens if there is a COVID outbreak in a school. So there's no protocol for that yet. And again, there's no protocol for, you know, just we encourage everybody to be vaccinated. And I think the other big missing piece is that there's actually been very little discussion about the educational component, which is, you know, what schools are about. So are we going to make sure there is lots of extra support staff? There are lots of, uh, you know, easier access to mental health supports. Lots and lots of young people are really struggling uh, with their mental health. So there's a lot more to be done. And it's now, you know, three weeks till school starts. Um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of that is you learn from stage one, two, and three. Um, that being said, mental illness, as you expressed, a huge uh, topic this week, and and many discussing uh, the effect uh, that this has had over the last uh, seventy three weeks or so, uh, with the kids in and out or out or or, or what have you. Uh, is it safe to say they're going to stay in unless something drastic happens? Considering we've been through the first and second and third wave, and as you said, uh, at this point. Where you know we have the majority of us vaccinated, will will you be surprised if they if they're locked out again? I mean, it looks like they're in forever at this point. For for sure, I would be really really surprised. I mean, all of the science and health people have been vehement in their yeah. uh, in their concern about what it has meant to kids to not be able to be in school in person. So, but we do have to make sure that we're doing everything we can then to make that okay. But. We also have to make sure then that we're uh, truly dealing with, and right now, even in the plan, it says, you know, schools should access, you know, mental health supports in their communities. Well, it's really hard to ask access those things. So that there needs to be more work there to ensure that it can't be back to normal when kids go back to school. There has to be lots and lots of time and space to 
um, and be able to deal with all of the impact of this last year and a half and the ongoing impact. Um, and so teachers need more support. There needs to be more time. We can't just go back to curriculum as usual. Um, we have to understand that for young people, I mean, for all of us, it's, you know, it's, it's been very hard on everybody. Yeah, and it's been yeah. very, very hard on young people. Um, I guess we won't know the long-term effect of this for uh, for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, when when a kid's at a, a, an integral part of their development, and then all of a sudden they're basically put in a box for a year, um, that can have pretty long-term effects, can it? Yeah. Well, it's not just that. It's not just like depriving them of their social lives, but it's it's all of the anxiety around COVID too. So that. Um, you know, living in a global pandemic, trigger is an overused word, but it triggered all sorts of other things. So yeah. many, many people are struggling with their mental health because of that, because of the anxiety or for families about um, loss of work or trying to work at home while your kids are going to school or dealing with, you know, families who had to still had to go to work in so-called essential uh, work where they were put at risk families where people did get COVID or people died. Um, so there's been an incredible amount of, um, you know, sort of a global stress and anxiety. And I think that, you know, for, for kids, you can imagine, you, you, you know, one of the main things that you want is to feel safe and secure and, and like the grownups kind of know what they're doing. And it was hard for all the grownups to, you know, know how, how to deal with this time that we're still dealing with. I just got an interesting note from uh, a listener, school bus drivers. I mean, there's a, there's oh, another yeah. layer to the onion, right? Yep. And also, th- so they're going back full now. So school buses will be yeah. at capacity. That seems a little odd. Uh, I, not, I don't think that transit is at capacity. So for school bus drivers, I think the only thing is that the seat beside, behind them uh, can't be occupied. But they must be worried. Too. I'm sure... Everybody feels worried about going back to school. People in boards are working as hard as they can to make it okay and make it safe. Um, but we do have to think about the school bus drivers, the caretakers, the school secretaries, the, you know, mm-hmm. all of the people who are doing this work for, you know, the two million kids that, that, that need this. What, Annie, any advice for parents as they're getting ready to head their, you know, send their kids back in another few weeks? Because uh, obviously there is going to be some anxiety there. Uh, you know, we're trying to approach it with a new sense of optimism that it'll be better than it was last year. Uh, but then again, you know, our kids are above 12, so they're in that, they have that safety net. But mm-hmm. any, any advice for parents who are trying to figure out what to do as we head into the fall? Well, I. It's hard being a parent. I I mean, I think that for one thing, it's like be on holiday right now if you can be, you know, because what 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 has been worrying is the idea. It's like everybody, you know, the idea that everybody should be doing more schoolwork in the summer or and it's like everybody needs some rest and some relaxation. It's been really hard with everybody working at home because there's been so little division between kind of work and non-work. Um, but it's trying to and then trying to reassure kids that actually, you know, we know so much more than we knew last year. And for the most part, notwithstanding the numbers, you know, are going up. I, oh, you know, I, I don't think, again, totally not an expert. We're not going to end up in the same 
we have learned a lot. Everybody's yeah. learned a lot, including the politicians. We're not going to end up in the same mess as before. The only thing I will say, this is you know less reassuring, is it is um, frustrating that there isn't more of a plan in place when you know once again it's August and we're talking about where the plan is, uh, and that's a bit frustrating. Uh, I think more could have been done uh, by now. Annie Kidder with us, Executive Director of People for Education, talking about uh, heading back to school and vaccination and the kids under 12, uh, obviously uh, not permitted at this point, and whether vaccines should be mandatory in the education system. Annie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We certainly know what happened with COVID-19 and coming up with the vaccine and Canada's inability to produce a vaccine here in Canada and instead waited for uh, others to finish up where we before we really finally got mass vaccination happening in the country, which was around May. Uh, well, now great news that Moderna is set to sign a deal that will see a plant for them to manufacture a vaccine right here in Canada. This is an mRNA vaccine, uh, which, of course, is the latest technology. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm just great. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So, Marvin, your thoughts on uh, building a plant in Canada? Uh, what's different now? Because we, you know, we've talked about this before. That obviously governments don't make vaccine; they just make the environment conducive enough for companies to come in and do it. So, what has changed now that all of a sudden Moderna says, "Yeah, let's come in and set up shop there"? Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to answer your question, but I'd like to just give people a little background on Moderna. Uh, we've been tossing that word around a lot over the last year, and I'm willing to bet most people don't know anything about this company. Mm-hmm. So uh, as opposed to Pfizer, Pfizer is a well-known name in pharmaceuticals. It's been doing it for decades and decades and decades. Moderna is a relatively new player. What do I mean by that? Well, it started in just 2010, so it is not yet even 11 years old. It started in Cambridge, Massachusetts, specifically to exploit mRNA technology. In fact, the name of the company was chosen because mRNA is a key part of the word Moderna, and so the two go hand in hand. Hmm. Um, This was, although they have been doing research on mRNA vaccine for the better part of the last decade, this was their first practical vaccine that they had developed. Uh, They did it very quickly in 2020. They got approval. And from the beginning, they had problems meeting demand. Um, As you might remember, it was Pfizer and Moderna. Those were the first two out of the block, followed shortly after by AstraZeneca and then Johnson & Johnson. Um, And so from the beginning, they had lots and lots of people wanting to buy vaccine, but they didn't have an ability to produce it. So the only way they were able to produce it was to license their technology or do co-ventures with other established uh, companies around the world. And even still, they haven't been able to supply at the volume we want. If you can remember earlier this year, there was at least three separate occasions where Moderna vaccines got held up. They Mm -hmm. had promised to deliver something and they couldn't do it. So they have been looking to build capacity. They believe the mRNA platform is something that can be used to develop other kinds of vaccines, but they have a lack of production capability. So now why Canada and why now? In the spring federal budget, the Canadian government earmarked $2.2 billion, that's with a B, $2.2 billion 
to work with companies that were doing vaccine research, that were interested in establishing vaccine plants and technologies and what have you. You might remember we've already done one of these deals with a company called Sanofi. That is a company based in the Toronto area, and they were going to put an expansion on one of their facilities specifically to do vaccine. There's a second one we've done uh, with a company in uh, Novavax. Uh, they were going to build a plant in the Montreal area. Now, they don't actually have a vaccine at the moment, but this is something that was going to come down the road, and this was good. And today, Moderna has signed a deal uh, with the Canadian federal government to do a plant here. At this point, we don't know how many dollars are involved. Now, I'm going to just go out on a limb and tell you I bet the number is going to be somewhere between 200 million and 400 million will be the federal portion. Moderna is also going to invest a portion, but the key is that within a year or two they will have a plant here capable of producing vaccines and because it's inside Canada, regardless of who the president of the United States is, we'd be able to get access to those vaccines for whatever might be coming down the road in the future. Um, there are people who believe that uh, COVID, of course, is going to continue to mutate. We may need booster shots. And so, okay, Moderna, make us booster shots. They have also been working on uh, mRNA vaccines as a possible way to treat and maybe even uh, cure or at least vaccinate against AIDS. So the feeling is this platform is going to generate a lot of other vaccines in the future, and it's going to be a good thing to have one of them here. Uh, you said uh, we don't know what the costs are as yet or what the incentive is. What do you, you said anywhere from 200 to $400 million. Yep. Does that mean there's room for others? Perhaps do we see the same sort of a deal for a Pfizer? Or is Moderna yeah. have, have more control now? Because the, yeah, well, the short answer to your question is yes. Now, remember, it was $2.2 billion in total. We've already seen money taken out of that fund for Sanofi. We've seen money taken out of that fund for Novavax. And each of the amounts have been in that order of magnitude, several hundred million dollars. So the, the hope was not to spend $2.2 billion with just one person, but again, kind of like betting on multiple horses in a horse race, let's, let's back three or four or five of these and, and try to get them here in Canada. So Pfizer could be one of these. Uh, AstraZeneca could be one of these. Uh, it could be a Canadian bread solution. You may or may not remember that uh, the University of Saskatchewan has been working on a COVID vaccine, and maybe there'd be ability to spend, uh, spill that product out, uh, generate a company from all of that. So that was the whole idea of the money, was that it would be there to stimulate this kind of investment from companies outside Canada, but get them to come inside, and then we'd have capability here. Uh, what does this mean for the generic drug business uh, in Canada? It seemed that there was, um, you know, issues between uh, Big Pharma and the generic drug companies. Has our attitude on Big Pharma changed as a result of the pandemic? No. So <laughs> I'm sorry for a abrupt answer like <laughs> no, that. No, that's great. No. So the, the reason is that uh, to develop something new, there's a tremendous amount of cost in the research and development. And in exchange for that, we give a, a brand name company a patent. And that patent allows them to produce the product for 20 years without any fear of competition. But... At the end of the 20 years, that uh, technology then becomes public domain, and that allows the, the no-name companies to come along and make generic versions of them. Uh, this is what led to... Um, um, oh, yes, now the name just left my mind, but the, the Shermans who passed away... Apotex. 
yeah, that's how they got their business. They didn't develop new drugs. They waited for them to patents to expire, and then they produced generic versions of them. Now, for COVID vaccine, it's far too new. So um, the, the generic people aren't going to be able to make generic versions of COVID vaccine for another roughly 19 years as we go. Yeah. Um, but other kinds of vaccines, flu vaccines, what have you, uh, it could make some difference there. But the, at this point, Moderna is not interested in getting into the generic drug business. They've got this platform, this technology, mRNA, and they want to exploit it just as far as they can. So it's not going to make a difference for them. But um, my feeling is that this money that the federal government has is not really intended for the generics. It's really to do cutting-edge stuff, get the vaccines when we need them for what could be another pandemic in five or ten years. Uh, obviously, as you said, um, you know they're contributing to a, to a few different projects. Is the future M, uh, mRNA vaccines? Um, I, um, I know with I think it was one in Montreal, or maybe I'm wrong, or uh, that that isn't. It, it's more a bio, uh, the old style of vaccine. Should should we be investing in that, or should we be investing strictly in mRNA vaccines, since that is the new technology? Well, if, if some if if. Pre- Prime Minister was to come to me for advice, and he's not likely to, my answer would be, just like a horse race, bet on as many horses as you can. So AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are vaccines, COVID vaccines, based on the more traditional platform that we have. Uh, uh, Pfizer and Moderna are based on the new platform, and I don't think it's an either-or Let's have some of everything. Let's put, a, mm-hmm. put, put our money on every square on the roulette table so that no matter what number comes up, we got a winner here. And I think that's, that's the strategy. So Novavax is more of a traditional vaccine development company. Sanofi is more of a traditional. Now Moderna is on the new platform. And, and to my mind, this is the correct way to go. Uh, bet on all the horses in the race, and then whatever comes up, you'll have a winner. But I should also note that uh, mRNA is not the end of this. There are lots of other people out there studying vaccines, studying diseases, and just as sure as I'm sitting here in five or ten years, we'll say, oh, that mRNA, that's so old-fashioned, we've got to use qRNA or who knows Mm -hmm. whatever it is because that'll be the next generation. And that's the great thing about medical research. It's always evolving and it's always finding new things. Uh, I, I enjoy the horse race analogy, but is that accurate, Marvin, in the sense that uh, the winner isn't decided by the horse? The winner is decided by the people watching the race. So we bet on AstraZeneca, and uh, people said, ah, that's not the first. Sorry, you're finishing last. So, uh, again, what's the sense in investing in a vaccine that uh, people are going to stub their nose up at because NASI isn't given it, or is NASI is given conflicting information than Health Canada? Yeah. Well, you see, again, my problem, especially during the, the COVID uh, crisis that we've had over the last 17, 18 months, is there have been lots of fits and starts. We go in this direction, then we've got to veer off in that direction and go somewhere else. It is hard to know up front which horse is going to finish the race mm-hmm. in the lead. You, you will remember, and people have correctly criticized Justin Trudeau, he actually bet on a vaccine from China that stumbled badly yeah. and, and didn't go anywhere. Um, I don't, that does not bother me as much because again, if I bet on five horses in the race, they can't all win the race. I just want to make sure that something I bet on crosses the finish line, realizing that some may stumble out of the gate. And that's the thing about medical research. You, you can't just sit back. So take Japan, 
who's just finished with the Olympic Games, you probably know that their rate of vaccination is maybe 10% of the population. They decided to wait. They didn't jump in early. They didn't sign deals with any of the early. Let's see where this goes. And, of course, as a result, they are very late out of the blocks. I'm happier with our approach because look at where we are today. The proof's in the pudding with nearly 80% vaccine vaccinated. Uh, since you br- uh, brought up the Olympics, I have to ask, especially with your uh, y- your business expertise, uh, your thoughts on the games that just finished, the impact of COVID. Obviously, the advertisers. I think it was Toyota that said we're not even going to you know brand the Olympics in our commercials in Japan yeah. because there was such a a backlash. What does this do for the Olympic movement moving forward and the amount of money that it generates? Uh, this has pretty much been a bidding process for those that are trying to get the attention of the IOC. Does this change anything? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very good question, and I think it's just a little early to know, in part because we've got another Olympics in just six months in Beijing. The Winter Olympics yeah. of 2022 happened truly six months. This is the closest two Olympics have been since they were held in 1992, the Winter and Summer Olympics, just six months apart. Um, so we're not just sure. Now, uh, 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 Tokyo's Olympics is going to go down at roughly a $21 billion cost. And there are a few people that have talked about it being the most expensive Olympics. It's not. Uh, the Beijing Summer Olympics uh, was more expensive, and the uh, Sochi Winter Olympics was even more expensive, nearly $55 billion. Unfortunately, we know up front that Tokyo is not going to break even because they didn't have any revenue from ticket sales. The stands were virtually empty. As a result, as you point out, a number of advertisers went, well, I don't know if I can get that excited about it. Um, uh, so we know they're going to lose money on this, um, but really through no fault of their own, it was a worldwide pandemic that caused the problem. Tokyo, um, Beijing, who hosts the Winter Olympics, yes, they're going to lose money on it because for China, this is more a chance of bragging rights. It's the first city that's hosted both a summer and a now a winter Olympics, so they're going to blow the budget on all this. Uh, I think the one that's going to be interesting to watch is Paris in 2024, followed by Los Angeles in 2028. Um, uh, both cities have, have pitched an economy uh, or an economic version of games using reusing facilities that had already been built. And uh, Los Angeles, the last time they held the Olympics, uh, was actually one of the few cities that made money at the whole thing. Mm. So I'm going to be interested in watching that. Tokyo's now in the books. It had its problems, and there will always be a little asterisk beside the 2020 Tokyo Olympics that were held in 2021. Uh, I'm just not sure that's typical. So I think the, really the question will be the Beijing Olympics, and hopefully, again, COVID will be in the rearview mirror. We won't have the same kind of issues as we go there. Uh, I think a whole pile of different issues when it comes to Beijing. There's lots of chatter about boycotts and such, and considering where China is and its relations with the rest of the world. uh, Do you think this is going to happen? Do you think we're going to see boycotts? Well, uh, I will tell you from Canada's standpoint, a lot of this is going to very much depend upon two things, the Madame Mung case and however that gets resolved, and then, of course, the two Michaels who've been under arrest in uh, in China now for over two years, or about two years. Um, how that plays out will determine whether we participate in this. And there will be pressure on whoever is governing. Uh, perhaps Mr. Trudeau will still be in power, or maybe Mr. O'Toole will be in power, and there may be some calls to boycott because of that. Um, China is trying to walk this fine line of showing that it is a, a superpower of this century, and yet at the same time trying... Uh, 
trying to sort of flex some muscle, and when they do, they don't do it very well. Americans seem to have a better handle on how to flex their economic clout. China's a bit more of the bully in the China shop. But um, uh, I'm going to be interesting to watch all of this. I can certainly tell you from the people's standpoint, the people of China are really excited about this, much more so than the people of Paris or the people of Los Angeles. They, They are really, really excited to make this happen. One other quick note, Scott. Uh, we've even now awarded the 2032 Summer Olympics mm-hmm. to Brisbane, Australia. However, we haven't sorted out uh, either the 2030 or the 2026 uh, Winter Olympic Games. There are a number of people have pulled out. There's been a certain amount of pressure on Calgary to step forward, again, reusing facilities that already exist. And it is saying that you know nations are thinking three or four times before bidding because of the tremendous cost involved. In uh, getting back to Beijing, uh, what if uh, what if the Huawei CFO case is not resolved? I mean, if, if in fact uh, she is uh, convicted of the charge, or sorry, not convicted, but sort of uh, cleared to be extradited, they will appeal that, and that could take uh, quite a while. So, what if we're in the same scenario now as, uh, or sorry, then in Beijing, coming up to Beijing as we are now, and and nothing has moved. Well, if, if the situation isn't much different than it is now, there will be many, many calls on Justin Trudeau to, to declare a boycott of the Chinese Olympics. The Olympic movement itself would allow Canadian athletes to participate, but under the flag of the Olympics themselves. This happened, for instance, with the Russian athletes. Uh, they, they could participate, but they couldn't wave a Russian flag or play the Russian national anthem. Um, and it will be a very difficult call because other people will say, why would boycotting the Olympics actually change anything in China? Why are we paying the burden of whatever your dispute is with China? We're not a big part of this, uh, and yet many people believe in the symbolism of a boycott. So um, this, our relationships with China, it's a very funny, delicate dance, and this could be yet another turn in that uh, as we go forward. As Canadians, aren't we all a part of it? Well, we we are, and yet it affects some. I mean, of I, I certainly, I, I I and I totally understand. I mean, Olympic uh, Olympians who have spent you know the the majority of their life, or certainly their adult life or, and teen life, trying to get to this point. I mean, it would just be absolutely uh, devastating uh, for them. But if two Michaels are in custody still. Uh, and, and we are where we are, and we certainly heard what happened with Schellenberg today. Um, you know, it, it's not a case of punishing. It's do we give someone the, uh, the opportunity to showcase themselves while this is all going on behind the scenes? Well, I, and I understand your comment, and that's a, that's a perfectly valid argument on the one side. On the other side is what would a downhill skier playing or not playing, how would that change the situation in any way? Uh, I suppose those people who want to argue for the boycott would say, well, by participating, you're providing some legitimacy to the Chinese government, and we shouldn't do that. But the downhill skier says, I'm not competing against China, per se. In fact, as you can probably figure out, if if the United States and Canada were to boycott those Winter Olympics, guess who gets more medals? China. So, you know, do you actually play into their hand by boycotting? It's not an easy thing to sort out. Because the Olympics are not consequential. They are almost the definition of a non-essential service. Yeah, and it's interesting with the change in attitude towards the Olympics that we've seen in the last 10 or so years, if that has any play in this. 
Yeah, now, these Olympic Games, generally speaking, highlight sports that we don't think of until another four years go past. We're, we're all thrilled. You know, we had a Canadian who won a, a bicycle race. They chased something around. I forget the official name of it. I don't know that sport. I don't follow those people, and I won't follow it next year or the year after that. Uh, there are things like Canadians winning soccer. Oh, soccer, yeah, I, I mm-hmm. kind of follow that and understand what goes on. But in the Winter Olympics, you have something called skeleton, where people get on a sled and slide down a, uh, a course head first. And yeah. So fascinating thing to watch, but I don't follow it on a day-to-day basis. Hockey, on the other hand, oh my gosh, you know, that's how we define ourselves as Canadians. So these are these become very interesting questions, and, and where did the Olympics fit in? Uh, as you know, Hamilton co-hosted the Pan Am Games with Toronto a few years ago. I'd be hard-pressed to tell you where the next Pan Am Games are. Is it really that important? And, you, you know, the society is very split on this. Sports, for many people, is a, is a way to show national pride. Uh, there are other ways. I, I, you know, I don't quite know what the correct answer is. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, talking about everything COVID-19 and the Olympics. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Uh, thank you. I will. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.